Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm taking up Matthew 17, verses 14 through 27 to the end of the chapter. In the last section of the first part of Matthew 17, in the last audio, we discussed Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and now they're just coming down from the mountain. Verse 14, when they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers severely. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Now, this boy that was having seizures, the Greek word for that is moonstruck, reflecting an ancient belief that seizures came from the different phases of the moon, according to my NIV study Bible. We find out that the real reason is not phases of the moon, but the boy had a demon, Mark 9, verses 17 through 18. Out of the crowd, one man answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. A spirit that makes him unable to speak. So this was a, a deaf, dumb type demon. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And if that's not a perfect description of a demoniac, I don't know what is. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they could. And I've actually seen a demoniac foaming at the mouth. It's pretty gross. Now, when was this? It says when they reached the crowd. That was the next day after the Mount of Transfiguration, because on Luke, Luke 9:37 says that the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. I am assuming that the appearance of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and then God speaking from the Shekinah glory cloud all happened at night. Day dawned, and the next day they came down from the mountain. Now, three disciples were with Jesus were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, the other nine, were down casting out demons, apparently, or trying to, failing in this case. But they were carrying on the ministry while the close disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, were up on the mountain experiencing the glory but unfortunately the nine disciples below were having trouble now this father of the demoniac the moonstruck demoniac he called jesus lord now whenever you see that you wonder well is this just being a polite address like sir or is it lord as in you are some kind of divine figure a messiah or maybe even god well i i tend to think it's more of a august address than just sir not that he knew exactly what the messiah was or maybe he didn't quite know he was divine, but he knew he could do some bodaciously large miracles. Now, he does point out the disciples were having trouble casting out the demon. They couldn't cast him out. Now, why would the father of the demoniac say that? Well, he could have been saying, Jesus, this is a big one. I need your help. This demon is, is awful powerful. Or maybe your disciples are so weak, I need to go to the man in charge. You're the boss of the disciples. I want some results here. I need more power than I'm getting out of your disciples. That makes sense why he would say something like that. Now, here's some options as to why the demon did not come out when the other nine disciples tried to get him out. It could be because the three principal disciples were absent and their faith joined to the other nine disciples' faith might have been stronger, according to John Gill, and that might have gotten the demon out. Or it's simply because of the unbelief of the nine disciples down there. Matthew 17, 20, a few verses later says, Jesus says this, Because of your little faith, this is after they asked him, how come we couldn't cast him out? Because of your little faith. And I'll tell you what, Jesus expected people to have faith. He couldn't figure out why in the world the disciples couldn't cast out those demons. Could have been the unbelief of the Father. Let's read Mark 9, 22 through 24, parallel passage. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. This is the father speaking. 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now that if tends to show a little bit of doubt. And then when Jesus says to him, if you can, if you can, it sounds like he's he's saying this in amazement and wonderment. What do you mean if you can? Everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. Or it could be the combined unbelief of the disciples and with the unbelief of the Father. But at any rate, whoever's unbelief it was, it was unbelief that caused a lack of results. And I hate to sound like I'm a Copeland Haganite, which I am not, but we don't need to let these faith message heretics, these word of faith doctrinal deviants, we don't need to let them rob us of faith. Because in the scriptures, there's plenty of cases where Jesus does work according unto you, let it be done unto you according as you have believed. Because of your little faith, you couldn't cast them out. Because they didn't have faith in Nazareth. He didn't do any miracles there. When the woman with the issue of blood uh, uh, was there, he said, because of your faith. He's constantly talking about faith. He said, I've never seen such faith in this in Israel to the centurion whose servant was healed. And on and on and on it goes. It's not just a one-off occurrence. It's over and over again. It's faith. He honors faith when the paralytic was drawn by four of his friends and let down through the roof. Jesus looked and saw their faith and he healed them. So Jesus loves faith. It shows that you love Jesus when you when you believe in him and when you want to do ministry with it for him, you better believe him. There was a crowd down there at the bottom of the mountain. Apparently the crowd had gathered there when they knew that Jesus had gone up on the mountain and somehow figured that out. Where, where is he? He's up on the mountain. Well, let's stay down here and wait for him. They waited patiently. They wanted so badly to hear Jesus and to be healed by him. Now, here's uh, another parallel passage of this instance I haven't mentioned yet. Luke chapter 9, verse 39. It, it shows again that the seizures that Matthew cites here were caused by a demon. Often a spirit seizes him, a spirit, an unclean spirit, a demon. Often a spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions and he foams at the mouth, wounding him and hardly ever leaves him. You see the devil trying to destroy the demoniac, wounding him. Probably when it throw him that throws him down on the ground and hurts him as he as he hits the ground or hits rocks, shrieking loudly. If you ever heard a demon shriek, I have. Not pleasant. Hideous. Now we ought to mention here, of course, that not all seizures are caused by demons. Some seizures are caused by physical defects in the body. But I don't see any point in having a false dichotomy saying either or. It could either be. It could be. You know some charismatic some charismatics who get off on demon exorcism talk about they think that every single thing in the world physically wrong with somebody is caused by a demon and then you got cessationists who say that everything physically wrong is caused by physical everything that's wrong is caused by physical causes and then they won't even consider that it might be a demon you've got to avoid the scylla and charybdis of those two extreme positions that's not going to get the job done matthew 17 verses 17 through 18 Jesus replied, he replied to the man who was asking for Jesus to please heal his demoniac son who was getting thrown into the water. He replied to that man, you unbelieving and rebellious generation. So I don't know, this is kind of funny here because the man did come to Jesus expecting him to cast the demon out. So in that sense, he did show faith to me. But Jesus replied, you unbelieving, rebellious generation. He wasn't. Sh it wasn't because the man had come to Jesus that he was showing a lack of faith. It was because he hadn't got the demon cast out. And then he said, how long will I be with you? As a matter of fact, it wasn't very long. He was crucified shortly hereafter. I don't know exactly how long, maybe 
he's getting ready to go down for the last Passover here. Crucifixion Passion Week is about to happen, so we're talking about a very short time. How long will I have to put up with you? Not for very long. But despite the fact that Jesus seemed extremely irritated at their lack of belief, he then tells the father, bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and from that moment the boy was healed. So Jesus might have been provoked by their lack of faith, but he didn't cut off his compassion. We need to remember that, and we need to, rem- we need to avoid faith formulas. Do I have enough faith for Jesus to do something for me? No, you've got to rely on his love for you. Believe him, believe that he loves you. Now there's a question about who Jesus was speaking to when he replied to that unbelieving and rebellious generation. Was he talking to the Father? Was he talking to the unbelieving Jews? Was he talking to the disciples? Well, let's look at that. Or was, or was he referring to all of them together? As John Gill says, quoting Mark 9:19, he replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to, him to me. Gill says that the them there in Mark 9:19 is referring to the disciples, the fathers, the other followers present, and the scribes. In other words, everybody. Jesus would not have said this to the disciples, says John Gill, and I tend to agree with him. That was too strong to apply to them. They were following him around. They were getting ready to follow him to, to where they were going to get crucified, or at least at least they knew that there was going to be opposition to what they were doing. So they, they, didn't, they weren't exactly completely devoid of faith. So it's probably not the disciples, according to Artem Adam, uh, according to John Gill, and Adam Clark agrees. He said this last expression, you unbelieving and rebellious generation, could not have been addressed to the disciples, who were certainly saved from the corruption of the world, and whose minds had been lately divinely illuminated by what passed at and after the transfiguration. But at all times, the expression was applicable to the Jewish people. So Jesus is not speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to the unbelieving Jews. Deuteronomy calls them a devious and crooked generation. Jesus here calls them an unbelieving and rebellious generation. This generation, Jesus says in Matthew 23 when he pronounces the seven woes on this evil generation. Deuteronomy 32.5 says, His people have acted corruptly toward him. This is their defect. They are not his children, but a devious and crooked generation. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees have been insulting his disciples, triumphing over the disciples. So it's unlikely, says John Gill, that Jesus would be calling his own disciples an unbelieving and adulterous generation, an adulterous and rebellious generation. Unlikely Jesus would say that to his disciples who needed a little bit of rehabilitation at the point, at this point, because the Pharisees probably had said, ha, 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 see there, you couldn't cast out the demon of the guy who was being thrown into the water. You couldn't cast him out. And Jesus said, no, you Pharisees, you were the unbelieving and rebellious generation. But on the other hand, that's one argument. On the other hand, he could have been speaking to the disciples because in Ma- a few verses later, in Matthew 17:20, after the disciples asked them, point blank, why couldn't we cast those demons out, that demon out? Jesus said, because of your little faith. Because of your little faith, he told them. For I assure you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And obviously, you had faith less than the size of a mustard seed because casting a demon out is not as big a deal as moving a mountain. And you couldn't move a mountain, you couldn't cast a demon out, so your faith is less than a mustard seed. So he was pretty strong. So I think that the uh, jury is still out on what Jesus was, who he was talking to. I suspect he was talking to his disciples because he told them, 
He did, they didn't have faith. He constantly told them they they had little faith, that they were of little faith. But he did it in a loving way. I mean, after all, he did cast the demon out. He was trying to show them, look, believe, believe, believe me, and you can cast the demon out. Matthew 17, verse 19. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? This is the other nine besides Peter, James, and John. And it was privately because they probably had retreated to the house at Capernaum, Peter and Andrew's house, where, which was their base of operations. Mark, the parallel passage in Mark 9:28 says, After he went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And, of course, entering into the house, a house is probably the house at Capernaum. Now, why couldn't they drive the demons out? The disciples must have thought they had lost the power they once had. Remember, Jesus gave them a power over all unclean spirits as he had sent them out on a previous journey. They had come back already, and they were casting out demons. Remember, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so they cast out demons. They were used to casting out demons. They had cast out a lot of demons, and in fact, this is probably what happened. They got so used to casting out demons, it got to be rote with them. It got to be too easy, and they didn't forgot to pray. And they certainly didn't fast, but they forgot to pray. And so Jesus is going to deal with this now in verse 20 through 21. Here's his answer. Why couldn't you cast out the demons? Here's his answer in verse 20. Because of your little faith. He told them, for I assure you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Now, Jesus of course, is rebuking them for their little faith. He says, your little faith, and then he says, you don't, and he, he basically says, implies very strongly, your faith is smaller than a mustard seed, because if your faith had even been up to the size of a mustard seed, you could have moved the mountain, but you can't move, you could, can't move the demon out of this guy. So you don't even have the faith of a mustard seed. Remember, a mustard seed was the smallest seed in Judea, not in the world, but in Judea, and so it was kind of proverbial for small. Now, this is hyperbole, of course. I used to, and I'm sad to say, could be because of my dispensationalist background. I used to think that we got to take it literally, got to take it literally. That means if I believe, I can believe, I can t- pray to God and he can move a mountain. Literally move a mountain, which is, of course, absolute and utter nonsense. This is hyperbole. Jesus is trying to cast a comparison between a little tiny seed and a big, big mountain. What you can do with a little bit of faith is a lot you can accomplish. That's all he's trying to say. He's trying to make a point. It's a metaphor. Don't go around trying to move mountains literally with your faith. That's nonsense. He says nothing will be impossible for you if you have this faith the size of a mustard seed. Now, that nothing, of course, means nothing in the will of God. That should be That should go without saying. Now, we have a textual problem here. Verse 21 says, However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. The NIV completely lives it out, leaves that verse out. The Holman Christian Study Bible puts it in, but they put it in brackets to show that there's a textual question here as to whether it, the original manuscript written by Matthew actually had that phrase in there. Well, let's look at a parallel passage here, which unfortunately also has a textual problem. Mark 9:29 says this, and he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, the and fasting is in brackets in the Holman Christian Study Bible. It's in brackets because the textual variants there make it not clear that the original had and fasting. However, there's no question about the prayer. The prayer is part of the original. There's no textual variance on that. No problem. So even if we leave out all the text, all the questionable text, 
we still end up with this. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. And again, why do they need to pray? Because they've probably gotten in a habit of casting out demons without thinking about it too much, and they kind of lost touch with the source of the power that they had. Jesus does not want to be a magician, and he doesn't want to turn his disciples into a magician. I recall back when I was in college, and we got all excited about praying for people for limbs to be grown out and that kind of thing. And I'll never forget the time that we were praying for a certain uh, young girl in our group, or maybe she wasn't in our group. She was an acquaintance, let's put it this way, and we told about all the miracles we'd seen. And I'll never forget praying, just expecting that short limb to grow out like all the other ones had, and nothing happened. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, I never forgot that. I said, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was turning God into a genie in the bottle. It took me a while to figure out what I had done, what we were doing, not just me. Can't do that. You just can't expect miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle just because, just because you get in the habit of it. That thing shook me up so bad I hadn't prayed for somebody like that since. And I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to say that, but I haven't. But at any rate, this is probably what happens. And of course, Jesus is saying here, he's not saying don't cast out any more demons because you failed. He's saying, no, pray and then continue to cast out the demons. Notice that he says this kind, that meaning this kind of demon does not come out, assuming that text, verse 21, is in the original. This kind, that would show that there are different kinds of demons with different degrees of strength. This is backed up in Matthew 12:45, which says, Then off it goes, off the demon that was cast out, off it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. More evil, that means some demons are more evil than others, and I don't doubt that in the least. The NLA Study Bible says, well, at least it means there's different kinds of demons. If there's different kinds of demons, why shouldn't some be more evil than another? Let's go to Matthew 17, verse 22. As they were meeting in Galilee, it doesn't say where, still somewhere up around Capernaum, I guess, Jesus told them the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, before the Mount of Transfiguration up at Caesarea, Philippi, he'd already told them, I'm going down to Jerusalem and I'm going to, be, I'm going to suffer much at the hands of men. I'm going to die and rise on the third day. He'd already said that. And we'll see a continuing effort by Jesus to instruct his disciples on what's to happen and a, a continuing dullness on their part to understand it because it was too hard for them. They were seeing miracles and they were so excited and the kingdom was spreading. And now you tell us you're going to die? You're going to die? So... Jesus is instructing them again after the Mount of Transfiguration. Once again, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now here, at this point, the public ministry is basically over. It's all but concluded. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. And if this is right around Passover time, we're talking about, I don't know, a couple months or so, weeks, not long before the last supper, the last Passover. Now, Jesus, instead of focusing his ministry on the public, he's now focusing his ministry on the twelve to prepare them for the horror that was about to come. Let's read some de uh, extra details we, get, we gleaned from Luke, Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 45. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. Listen to me, guys. I want you to understand something. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Why were they afraid? Maybe they were deterred by Jesus' air of, quote-unquote, lofty sadness, according to John Gill. 
Or maybe they were afraid to be rebuked for their shallowness and timidity, says John Gill. You know, the disciples had signed up for Jesus as a glorious Messiah, and they hadn't bargained on following the suffering servant to a cross. Take up my cross, Jesus told them, in the context of this whole situation of going down to Jerusalem to suffer crucifixion. He said, told his disciples, take up my cross and follow me. Follow me to, to death. Now, in verse 45, it said they did not understand this statement about dying. You know, if they had totally understood it, when he, he also told them about resurrection, they didn't understand that either. They didn't understand what resurrection meant. If they had, they probably wouldn't have been so sad. They would have said, well, that's cool. They didn't understand that. They did not understand because they, they did understand that Jesus was going to die. That's, that's not what they didn't understand. What they couldn't understand was how to reconcile that with his glorious messianic kingdom that he'd been teaching them about. This is according to John Gill, and I think he's exactly right. Now, it mentions the Son of Man. Of course, the Son of Man is a messianic title that Jesus uses to call himself. In the Gospels, nobody else calls Jesus the Son of Man except Jesus. It comes from Daniel. It's a symbol, excuse me, a title of Jesus' divinity. Now, I'm going to give you a, a long description of the Son of Man. It's kind of interesting stuff. I got this from a bunch of sources on the Internet. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Many have said that Jesus used this phrase to emphasize his humanity. The Jewish idiom used son of to show a close and intimate connection with. Therefore, a son of man is someone who is human, who has humanity. There is nothing wrong with this idea as long as one does not use it to detract from Jesus' divinity. After all, Jesus uses the phrase of himself when he forgave sins in Mark 2.10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that was the paralytic let down through the roof, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. However, ironically, the phrase Son of Man is actually used by Jesus to emphasize his divinity. He got the phrase from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, which says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The Ancient of Days being God, the Son of Man came up in that case, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So Jesus is about to inherit his kingdom, which is the earthly manifestation of which is the church. This reference is the only relevant use of the phrase Son of Man in the Old Testament. From the context, it is obvious that Daniel is using the term of someone divine. The Son of Man was presented before God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. If God gives you dominion, glory, and a kingdom, you are divine. The Son of Man is divine. But we know even more than this. Daniel was a prisoner of the Babylonians during the famous Jewish Babylonian exile, 587-586 B.C. And in old Babylonia, the phrase son of man meant heir to royalty. And we know that Daniel, who worked at first at Babylonia, and then later when the Babylonians fell to the Persians, he worked at Susa, the capital city of the Persians. So while he was there, he was familiar with all that language. He knew that the phrase son of man meant an heir to royalty. So when Daniel was using the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that the one like a son of man is rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. That's divinity, folks, not humanity. Son of man is essentially the same as the son of God in this context. In the New Testament, no one called Jesus the son of man, with the exception of Stephen as he was being stoned, as he, as he was being stoned in Acts 7. Jesus himself used it of himself all the time. He is recorded as doing this about 90 times in the Gospels. So every time he did it, Every time he used that phrase, he was essentially saying, I am God, and I will inherit a kingdom and have dominion forever and ever. So so um, Jesus, when he tells his disciples here, the Son of Man is about to be portrayed in the hands of men. There's sort of a delicious, sort of a, a deep contradiction here. 
the Son of Man, the Messiah, is about to be betrayed, that totally blew, I'm sure, the disciples' minds. How can the Messiah be betrayed into the hands of men? It was considered a terrible thing for a Jew to betray another Jew into the hands of a Gentile. And that's exactly what's about to be happen, about to happen. The Jews are going to betray Jesus into the hands of the Gentile Romans. Luke adds in a parallel passage here, Luke 24, 7, The Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. So now we know that, Je that Jesus even taught the manner of his death. Crucifixion was more than just dying. And sinful men is probably referring to Gentiles, because that's how the Jews referred to Gentiles as sinners, because they, they didn't keep the law. So Jesus is probably saying, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of Gentiles. How horrible to a Jew. Remember, these disciples are Jewish. They're not used to thinking of Gentiles as heirs of the kingdom, as we know from the history of the early church. It was hard for them to realize that, no, I, I mean for the Gentiles to get saved too. So this was all pretty much for these disciples to take in. And Jesus is trying to drill it into their heads to get them ready for the, for the hell that was coming when, when they would be chased from synagogue to synagogue. Now, here's another parallel passage here in Mark 9:30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. So I don't know where that place was. I think that's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. But the point here in Mark 9 is that he didn't want anybody to know it because no more miracles. That was his last miracle, actually, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. No more miracles. We're not mentioning to the crowds anymore. He's going to train the disciples and get them ready for what's coming. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 17, verse 23. Jesus continues his instruction of the disciples, of the apostles. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. And so you think, well, why are they deeply distressed? He says he's going to be raised up on the third day. It's because they didn't understand what he was talking about. I mean, resurrection from the dead, that's sort of an unusual thing, is it not? The NIV for deeply distressed, this is Holman Christian Study Bible here. They're deeply distressed. The NIV says filled with grief. And, and as I just mentioned, they were told not only that he was going to be killed, but he was going to be crucified. Luke 24, verse 7, the Son of Man must be betrayed in the hands of sinful men, be crucified. So it's cruci the only way that you get crucified is if you're a criminal. The Roman government nails you on a cross and shames you as a, a criminal. You're saying that the Messiah is going to be not only die, but he's going to die as a criminal. That's why they were deeply distressed. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Matthew 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, this is the city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee where Simon and Andrew's house was, where they were operating out of. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the double drachma tax approached Peter and said, Doesn't your teacher pay the double drachma tax? Now here's some fast facts about the double drachma tax. It was an annual temple tax. It was required of every male that was 20 years of age and older. It was worth half a shekel which is about two days' wages, and which used for the upkeep of the temple. Now, I've got a lot of scripture here in the Old Testament, which talks about this temple tax. Exodus 30, verse 12, When you take a census of the Israelites to register them, each of the men must pay a ransom for himself to the Lord as they are registered, that no plague will come upon them as they are registered. This was called atonement money, and it was for the service of the temple. We drop down four verses in Exodus 30. Take the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. I said the temple. I should have said the tent of meeting. It will serve as a reminder for the Israelites before the Lord to atone for your lives. All right. This apparently was not designed for a perpetual law. It was just to maintain the tent of meeting while they were in the wilderness. But as you know, once law taxes get enacted, it's hard to get them unenacted. It was not collected annually. 
Uh, it was not meant to be. It was only meant for the time of Exodus uh, of the tent of meeting, as mentioned in Exodus 30 that I just read. In Nehemiah's time, another third shekel was collected. Got a half a shekel and a third shekel. It's half a shekel in Hebrew terminology, and in Greek value, it's the double drachma tax. Nehemiah 10.32 says this, We will impose the following commands on ourselves, to give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God. That was not in the law. That was the Jews just decided to collect some more money to keep to get the temple started again in Nehemiah's time as they, re, as they are rebuilding the walls and rebuilding Jerusalem. Now, in the process of time, the the legal tax, double half-shekel tax in Deuteronomy and the voluntary tax in Nehemiah 10 became a fixed thing. And so at that time, they were the Jews were supposed to pay this temple tax. Here's another reference to it in Second Chronicles 24, 6. So the king called Jehoiada, the high priest, and said, Why haven't you required the Levites to bring from Judah and Jerusalem the tax imposed by the Lord's servant Moses and the assembly of Israel for the tent of the testimony? That tax for the tent, tax for the tent. That's the double drachma or the half shekel tax. Second Chronicles 24, 9. Then a proclamation was issued in Judah and Jerusalem that the tax God's servant Moses, and that's in Deuteronomy, God's servant Moses imposed on Israel in the wilderness, he be brought to the Lord. The Romans later took over this tax, by the way. When they took over the government, they said, you keep on paying this half-shekel tax. So anyway, this half-shekel tax was deeply embedded in the laws and the customs of Israel, and in fact, even in their conquering nation, uh, nation's laws or, or practice, they collected this half-shekel tax. And so you didn't pay that? That was bad business. So some one of the Pharisees, let's see, who was it, a Pharisee? Uh, well, it doesn't say a Pharisee. It says those who collected the double drachma tax. Tax collector said, hey, you paying your double drachma tax? Does your teacher Jesus pay the double drachma tax? Now, some people say this tax was voluntary. But to me, that's kind of strange because a tax, by definition, is not voluntary. It's obligatory. And from what I just told you about its Old Testament pre- precedents, if it was voluntary, it was voluntary in the sense of you better pay it. So they are concerned about getting the tax and they're wondering whether this big messiah this big messiah figure who's going around all over the place doing all these miracles whether he was going to pay it or whether he was going to be a rebel i wonder whether they were trying to get jesus in trouble for not paying it it doesn't say that but it's a reasonable speculation that's what they were trying to do why did they go to peter why did the collect tax collectors go to peter and we're assuming this is the jewish tax some people speculate it might be the roman tax that we're talking about here but i think it's the jews here uh why did they go to peter well remember they in capernaum Peter had a house in Capernaum, and the taxes actually were paid to the local hometown, so that means the tax would only apply to Peter and Andrew, Peter and Andrew, who I think were the only residents of Capernaum at that time. And so, and since Peter was kind of one of the leaders of the apostles, they went and picked on him. Matthew 17, verses 25 through 27. Yes, Peter answered. Yes, he said. In other words, yes, Jesus pays the tax. When he went into the house, this is probably Peter's house at Capernaum, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? What do you think, Simon Peter? Why, who do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes from? A tariff is a tax on goods moving across a border, and taxes are domestic internal taxes on income or sales. Who do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes from? From their sons or from strangers? Now, strangers here refers not to aliens because you don't collect taxes from aliens. It means people are not in the household, not in the king's household. From strangers, he said, Peter said, then the sons are free. In other words, a father doesn't collect taxes from his sons. And if the king is a father, 
his prince, his son, is not going to be paying taxes. And Jesus says, then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But, so we won't offend them, go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. Now, notice there's no hesitation when Peter answers yes, he said. He knew that Jesus had been paying the tax all along. I would note the implications for that for Christians who like to evade taxes. I remember getting into a discussion one time with somebody about this. And they said, what happens when the government wants to take 50% of your income? Which, hey, just recently... For top earners, it was advocated by a socialist in the American Congress that 70% taxes be levied on top earners' income, and over half the country agreed in a poll I saw. What happens if they just want to take 80%? What if they want to take 90%? You going to pay it? And I have to admit, I had a hard time answering that. What if they want to take 95% of what you make? Don't you have the right to take your goods and run into the wilderness? I think so, because here we're talking about a tax that was two wages, uh, two, excuse me, two days wages. Jesus paid that tax. Those were reasonable taxes. They were in God's law. They were not unreasonable. But when a government gets confiscatory, I'm not going to tell somebody they're supposed to pay 90% of their income to the government. It's ridiculous. Governments love to do this. They don't know when to stop taxing. Now, there's a question here. Uh, how Jesus knew what the tax collector had asked Simon Peter. Well, I mean, Simon could have told him, or it could have been used as, as his omnipotence as God. John Giltz always says that. It's God, he's God, he God, and knows. I don't think so. I think Peter just told him. Now, what does he mean by this? Let's get to the, the crux of the story here. Who is the son that's free from paying that tax? Now, if you say the sons of a, of a king, is Jesus is referring to the disciples, that means that that means that the disciples would not be would be free to not pay that tax. The problem with that is Jesus said not one jot or tittle, not one letter or stroke of the law would pass away until all is accomplished. I assume that means accomplished on the cross. They hadn't gotten there yet. They were still under the Jewish law. Are we trying to say that Jesus is saying, Peter, you're free not to pay that tax? Well, that's problematical. And so John, Jameson Fawcett and Brown, excuse me, says that he's talking about himself. The sons are free, the sons of a king, and Jesus is the son of God, the Father in heaven, who's king. So Jesus is free. He doesn't have to pay that tax because he's God. You know, you're know, you going to tax God? But in order to not give offense and mess up his ministry and get himself arrested prematurely, he was going to pay the tax. But he didn't have to. And so what Jesus is trying to tell Peter is, look, this Old Testament law that I'm under, that's not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is me. I'm the new lawgiver, and I'm Moses. I'm the new lawgiver. So Jesus says, we're going to pay that tax. Now, of course, apparently they didn't have the money, so he tells Peter to go catch the fish. Notice the sovereignty that's involved here. If, the, if there were no fish in, that, in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus would have to direct the fish to go down to the bottom of the lake and, and suck up a coin that had fallen into the sea. I mean, that's omniscient. That's a big miracle. That's a real big miracle. Now, the next question that arises is, why did he only get a coin for Peter and for himself? What about Andrew? Well, how about the other 11 apostles? They would have to pay taxes. They were poor. They were fishermen. Well, one of my commentators, and I forgot which one, says that the taxes were collected by local towns. And other that was John Gill. Other disciples would pay in their own hometown, so it was not an issue at, at that point for them to have to pay. However, Gill doesn't mention Andrew, who lived in Capernaum. He would have to pay. Why would Jesus only pay for Peter, not Andrew? I suspect it's because the tax collectors were after Peter. They went to Peter and asked him, Hey, is your master paying? And the implication is, are you paying? 
that's the way I would solve that problem. I hope I'm right. So much for Matthew chapter 17. We'll take up chapter 18 next time. Hope you enjoyed this audio. 